Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back. And we finally made it through all of World War II. In the last podcast, number 36, we wrapped up the Second World War by looking at the specific reasons for the Allied victory, again, specifically the United States, as well as, of course, discussing the impact of the Holocaust. So as we move on now in our second half of world history series, we're going to be looking at the world immediately after World War II. And in the next couple of podcasts, we're going to see how America was positioning itself in relation to practically every other country in the world. When again, we consider that we were the only country after World War II whose economy was stronger than it was going into the war. So as we move along now, we're going to see that the United States after World War II is going to be also testament to monumental changes, not including all of the inventions that came out as a result of the Second World War. The world will witness more change going forward than in the last 400 years combined. So this is the series of podcasts within the second half of world history or American history, when perhaps you're going to want to get your seatbelts on because we're going to be moving through and getting risking whiplash as we discuss some of these changes moving forward. First off, and most importantly, is discussing the future of America's bravest. That is the soldiers that fought in both the Pacific theater and or the European theater. We're talking about the soldiers and military leadership that never left the United States, but certainly sacrificed much, and just as significantly their families, as America tried to prevail in the Second World War. So for these soldiers coming back, I'm sure that most of my American listeners have heard at one point or another of a bill known as the GI Bill. And that was money that could be used, a federal grant that could be used for soldiers who fought in the conflict for one of three opportunities or three uh, reasons. One would be to start a farm, if that was where their interests lied. The other would be to start a business, an entrepreneurial grant, or a student grant, a college grant, in order for them to begin college classes or to continue them. This is what would increase college attendance and lower the typical age of a college student for decades going forward. Just as a side note too, occasionally a student will ask, what did GI actually stand for with GI Bill? It was a tongue-in-cheek nickname for uh, government issue. So GI stood for government issue. 
In terms of the soldiers coming back, we immediately recognized that there were housing shortages. And as a result of the assembly line that was producing cars faster than at any point before World War II, and then started producing weapons faster than any other country in the world that was involved in the conflict, we then applied that same corporate strategy to building houses in what became known as cracker box Georgian or cracker box type homes. These were homes where there would be this, which would also result then in a permanent standardization of appliances and the actual rooms in the houses. What I mean by that is that the, if one of the uh, kind of a fun uh, activity, which of course I don't expect the students to follow through on, I don't want them to, but it, it is at this point that I will tell my students, as I perhaps sit on the desk or get away from the podium for just a moment, where I'll tell them that with a fair amount of confidence, I could have all of my students swap phone numbers and over the course of the next week or before the next class period to go home and exchange dishwashers, if they each have a dishwasher at home, exchange their ovens, exchange their washers and dryers. And again, with a fair amount of confidence, I know that in those exchanges, the appliances will fit in each other's houses. The reason being is because the standardization now in housing development. By that, I mean that the average kitchen counter is as this industry norm is 36 inches high is 24 inches deep. So therefore your dishwasher is going to be 23 and a half inches high and 23 and a half inches deep. Reason being is because for the average height of Americans, a counter 36 inches high is the perfect length where it comes up at a relatively good height, roughly around one's waist and allows an individual to reach comfortably from the where they're standing to the back of the counter no more than 24 inches beyond that we start getting into stretching we start risking injury depending upon how long one is standing behind a typical kitchen counter that then bleeds into other appliances as well but as a norm this will become the industry-wide standard now are there not exceptions to that? Of course there are. There are, for example, just sticking with the dishwasher, there could be what becomes known as the Barbie and Ken dishwasher, which is a dishwasher that's still the same depth, 23 and a half inches, but is only 18 inches high. Those types of dishwashers are more popular in condominiums, apartments, those kinds of living establishments. But no, that when we start getting away from the norm, from the standardized issue, standardized dimensions, the price generally goes up and your available options go down simply because they're not making nearly as many of them. So the same again applies for the appliances that will become more and more standard as time goes on. With the VA and FHA loans becoming available, that is again VA for Veterans Assistance and FHA for Federal Housing Authority, which will become available, people are able to secure mortgages without the traditional 20% down in order to be able to put a bid on a house, condo, or townhouse. The reason for these homes and the reason for these uh, the, the housing shortage is also going to be because of the looming baby boom, where the average American families earning 15 times more the typical European family, Americans are bringing home 
a decent amount of money, if not a significant amount of money. And for the soldiers that returned and returned in good health, there was, for lack of a better way to phrase it, a little bit of, shall we say, making up for lost time, as now America would be seeing a significant increase in the amount of births throughout the United States. Getting back to politics and getting back to international relations, the relatively still new president of the United States, number 33, President Harry Truman, remember again that he was, he succeeded Franklin Roosevelt, who for 12 years was the 32nd president of the United States. Roosevelt died on April 12th, bringing Harry Truman in in the very, very last stages of the war to not only make the significant decisions of whether to use the one and eventual two atomic bombs to end World War II, specifically against Japan, but he would also be the pres first president of the United States that would have to deal with a now significantly militarily stronger Soviet Union. He would be the first president that would be linked to America's very next war, which either started parallel to World War II or started right after World War II, known as the Cold War. The Cold War, which would again, we'll talk about that in just a moment as to what that term means and then unpack it from there, is that the president is President Truman will be linked to the Cold War as the 33rd president, along with every president thereafter, until we get to the 41st president, George H.W. Bush. So from Presidents Truman through to the first President Bush, when it comes to their foreign policy, the number one objective is going to stop Soviet expansion. Please note that this is a parallel foreign policy to that of Adolf Hitler, who also wanted to stop Soviet expansion. But in his case, he wanted to attack the Soviet Union and push them back whereas the United States is not going to take that military strategy or that grand strategy in our approach. Rather, we want to simply stop Soviet expansion where it was at the conclusion of the Second World War, specifically over the European theater. So the main foreign policy objective against stop Soviet expansion. Please remember something else too. That is, it's that foreign policy mindset that is going to get the United States mired down in a conflict in Korea, and then as we know, mired down in a conflict in a place called Vietnam. Please know though, and this is something that is often lost no matter how diligently we may read a survey text on the second half of American history, or we may learn through podcasts and different videos that we have access to. Please remember that the average age of the United States military and political leadership. And what I mean by the average age is not whether that be 56, 66, or what have you, any specific number. Please know that these well-seasoned military and political leaders in the United States, at the conclusion of World War II, with the awe-inspiring reality of the destructive capabilities of nuclear weapons remember what these leaders lived through as well as their counterparts in other major countries around the world 
If you take a world leader, again, let's just come back to America, because this is the American History Podcast series, an American leader at 60 years old, whether he is a presidential advisor or one of the members of the top military brass, at 60 years old, remember what they lived through. At 14 years old, war broke out in Europe with devastating casualties that had never been witnessed before in human history. By the time that war ended, they witnessed a massive uprising financially in what became known as the Roaring Twenties. But look at the way that that crashed down. So by 29 years old, they witness the beginning of a decade-long Great Depression. A depression that wipes out a significant portion of the financial backing of every American citizen. Add just six years to that, as they are mired down into the middle of the 1930s, rumblings start reverberating throughout Europe and Asia that might lead to another world war. And by the time that the these Americans, again, let's just say figuratively born in 1900, by the time they turn 41 years old, they are attacked by an Asian power for reasons that they don't understand. By the time they're 45 years old, World War II came to a close, but at such a horrific cost. In other words, what I'm trying to get my listeners, as well as my students when I'm teaching face-to-face in the classroom to realize is these are world leaders that collectively just don't have a lot of positive faith in the future aspirations of human beings. They have seen the death of tens and tens of millions of people due to warfare. They've seen what they thought was a positive economic system called capitalism collapse almost completely all around them. They are looking around and off the shores of the Pacific coast and Atlantic coast at countries that are not embracing democracy the way Americans were and are certainly not embracing capitalism the way Americans were. So remember this. So as we look back And again, the point of my podcast is the exact same as the point of my teaching in the classroom, that as we discuss the events that unfold after World War II and the leaders that played a significant role, my goal is not to retrospect and look at and double uh, guess their thinking. It's not to criticize. But when we look back and we wonder why would they have taken perhaps such militaristic approach to something? Where was the benefit of the doubt that they might have granted a potential enemy? These are people, again, that just don't have a lot of positive faith in the human race going forward. Notice again, too, that I mentioned the countries of Korea and Vietnam. These are two areas, two countries, as we know, that are going to get divided in half after the Second World War, as will Germany. Do you recognize by chance a common denominator? One half will be embraced by the United States. Another half is going to be embraced by the Soviet Union and its backers. So just some overarching themes or ideas to consider 
as we move forward in the world that America's living in after the Second World War. So let's get back to this term that I used before called the Cold War, which is again America's stand face to face with our now new arch nemesis, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, collectively known as the USSR. This was a war. I know that sometimes individuals will second guess that really was this a war? Absolutely it was. To the point that, again, I cringe when I hear people talk about America's longest war that President Joe Biden ended in August of 2021. That just seven months into his job in the presidency, he pulled America out of a war in Afghanistan, which had been going on for almost two full decades. Please know that, again, people refer to that. I hear people in the press saying, ending America's longest war. And the criticism isn't met that they're necessarily doing something wrong, but it pales in comparison to the money spent and the type of lifestyle that people throughout the world would live in with this awesome threat of potential nuclear war. So what the Cold War specifically was, was a contest. It was a contest for three things around the globe. It was a contest for economic, political, and military dominance around the world. It would be an ultimate contest between the Soviet Union, whose economy was communism, its political system was a dictatorship, and its military was governed by that dictatorship. Now contrast that to the United States. Our economic system was capitalism. Our political system was democracy. And our military was run by the American people who elect a commander-in-chief to be in charge of that military for four or eight years. Please note that difference. Think about that for a moment. It's, I'm not here to criticize one and praise the other. But look at the common denominator of the Soviet system of communism, dictatorship, and a military run by that dictatorship. There is no room for public opinion. There is no room for John and Jane Q. Public to have a say. There is no freedom. With the American system, pounded out by the founding fathers that evolved from there, our economic system, capitalism, coupled with our political system, democracy. The common denominator of both of those systems is personal freedom. In the system of capitalism, yes, which paralyzed us with fear when the stock market crashed in October of 1929. Yes, greed had a significant part to do with that. But people's choice and our ability to choose ultimately prevailed and we put in a commander-in-chief to resolve those issues which led us down that road to financial collapse, hoping 
that those measures would not allow it to be repeated going forward. But again, people choose our leaders. In terms of the economic system too, as I will oftentimes bring up in my classes where I'll point to a student who has a bottle of juice or a pop or on occasion will bring in a bag of chips, something to that effect. And I'll ask them where they got it from. And more often than not, it's a vending machine. And I ask them, do you normally buy that same type of brand, that same corporate brand, whatever it might be, whether it be Mott's or it be uh, Evian Waters, if that's what they're uh, drinking. And usually they'll say yes. And I'll say, do you think it's expensive? You know, the kind of a shrug of the shoulders. Yeah, I guess it's a little pricey. But I said, what happens if that company that produces that bottle of juice decided to raise their prices by just a measly $1. So instead of spending $2 for that bottle, when you go back to the vending machine down tomorrow, it's $3. Are you going to spend $3? They can, but they can also punish that company by raising the price so significantly and going with one of their competitors. That's the freedom of choosing. It's a choice in its most basic sense. America punishes corporate America when they're not playing by the rules. It's not a perfect system. It doesn't always work. But an, but an economic, political, and military systems governed by one person or a group of people, sorry, check please. I'll take any day an economic, political, and military system where the ultimate common denominator is the choice of the electorate because it is ultimately our lives that are being affected now please know when i when i again i throw that definition out of what the cold war was again i'll repeat it one last time it was a contest for economic political and military dominance around the globe one could argue that that was a bit simplistic and i'm not here to argue that it isn't because there was a significant contribution to military in the world of the military that also helped to usher in this new conflict. And that was the impact and the development of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons would bring warfare to a whole new level that had never been witnessed before in all of humanity. The closest parallel that I can make for my listeners would be the advent of gunpowder. Think about that before the advent of gunpowder, that's the reason why soldiers put on suits of armor in the Middle Ages. That's the reason why they built castles and walled cities and fortifications. Because before gunpowder, it would take a long time to breach a wall, a long time to try to get into the confines of a castle. It would be more difficult to bring a soldier down when he was fully protected. Gunpowder was a game changer, though. Now gunpowder and that explosion pushing a projectile out of a small barrel at speeds unwitnessed before in human history could penetrate that suit of armor. And now the armor becomes more of a negative than it does a positive as the soldier is knocked down and has to try to get up, assuming that they're even able to do so. Suits of armor didn't work anymore because of gunpowder. Walled castles were not nearly as effective because of gunpowder. Now those walled and castled estates all come down 
And different feudalist states in the age of gunpowder recognized that they had to come together to protect themselves collectively because there was, for the most part, no real permanent protection against a barrage of projectiles being launched by explosions caused by gunpowder. That doesn't mean there weren't places to run. That doesn't mean that there were not places to hide to protect yourself from the effects of gunpowder. Gunpowder by itself wasn't all that expensive. But where the problem came in is to try to create weapons that could properly handle the explosion of a small amount of gunpowder and put the entire effect of that explosion in one direction behind one projectile to go out the barrel, that's what becomes expensive. Prior to the age of gunpowder, by and large, there wasn't a weapon that the average army had at their disposal that families couldn't collectively come together and produce on their own. With the age of gunpowder, that calculus changes significantly. The cost of warfare, the cost of defense rises so significantly that the average John and Jane Q public recognize that they can no longer keep up with the cost of personal or national defense. That trajectory continues on until we get again to the age of nuclear weapons. Because with nuclear weapons, unlike gunpowder, where there would be a safe place to go and run and hide, nuclear weapons takes that protection away. In the city of Hiroshima, in the city of Nagasaki, there was nowhere that those citizens could go within that city that was going to protect them from the devastating effects of a nuclear bomb being dropped roughly 1,600 feet above the city center. Even if one could protect themselves from the initial shock blast, could protect themselves from the hurricane force winds that drive out from the epicenter of the explosion and then reverses itself to fill the vacuum of that massive explosion, providing somehow they could protect themselves from that. What type of environment are they coming out to? They're coming out to nuclear fallout in the air, to radioactive water, radioactive vegetation. If they didn't die quickly, if they weren't incinerated in the nuclear blast from the outside, they would fry from the inside due to radiation poisoning, which we'll talk about later. In terms of cost, between 1940 and 1996, the United States will spend $20,000 for every American alive on nuclear weapons alone employing over 40,000 defense contractors, a small weapon that causes damage even decades later. One might ask, why did the United States to continue to develop nuclear bombs? Because the genie was out of the bottle, and the genie didn't care where the boundaries of the United States were. Quickly, the Soviet Union started its own nuclear research program. Remember that while the Manhattan Project was going on in the United States, Japan also had its own version of, Manha of the Manhattan Project going on, as did Hitler's Nazi Germany. 
So for these reasons, that genie was not going back in the bottle. So we had to continue to develop more and more weapons. And the Soviet Union felt it had to do the same thing. And that's not just the only two countries. Other countries would then also start their own nuclear research program. How then do you get that what we call nuclear arms race to stop? Bottom line, it doesn't and it didn't. The reason being is put best in Patrick Coffey's book called American Arsenal, A Century of Waging War. Patrick Coffey, that's C-O-F-F-E-E. And in his book on page 232, he cites an exercise or a game, if you will, that was produced at the Rand Corporation. And it works like this. It's a game called, quote, the dollar bill auction, end quote, that effectively modeled the Cold War arms race. Here's how it goes as Patrick Coffey wrote in his book, again, on page 232, quote, a dollar bill is up for sale, and either you or your opponent can bid any amount for it, starting with as little as one cent. But the auction has a special rule. Even if yours is not the high bid, you still must pay the winning bid, but you will get nothing in return. So the bid starts low and it escalates, one cent, 10 cent, 15 cents. Even when one player bids a full dollar, the bidding continues. The low bidder bids a dollar and one cent because dropping out would mean an immediate loss of a dollar with absolutely no compensation. There is no logical end to the game. The winning bidder must pay far more than that dollar is worth. And the losing bidder will pay the same and get nothing. The United States and the Soviet Union spent 45 years bidding for that dollar." End quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the Cold War evolved to be all about. How do, how does America navigate these now unbelievably treacherous waters going forward? How does John and Jane Q. Public go about their lives knowing that a nuclear holocaust could rain down on them truly at a moment's notice? That's where we'll begin with the next podcast in our series on the second half of American history. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great day.